Support for Talk of the Towns comes from Coastal Drilling and Blasting Incorporated, serving Downey, Central, and Midcoast, Maine, and located at 328 Bucksport Road, Ellsworth, 1-800-640-3515. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, a major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and the talk of the towns. Maine has a strong legacy of individuals and organizations who can serve and celebrate our history and some of the people who contributed to our collective story. But putting those stories just out of reach beyond the velvet rope doesn't seem to generate lasting impact, and we struggle to sustain collections and organizations where history is, well, just history. So this morning, we're going beyond the velvet rope to look at the stewards of history, energizers of community, as we um, talk with um, three guests, uh, two of them here in the studio. Joshua Torrance is executive director of the Woodlawn Museum and the Black House in Ellsworth. Welcome to you, Josh. Thank you. Also with us in the studio is Niles Parker. Niles is executive director of the Penobscot Marine Museum down in Searsport. Welcome to you, Niles. Thanks, Ron. By phone, we have Earl Shuttleworth, Jr., the Maine State Historian. Welcome to you, Earl. Thank you. Glad all of you could be with us. Let's um, get our, our kind of introductions in, um, each of you providing a little bit of background on yourselves and the affiliations that you bring um, to this topic, um, starting with Josh, so that our listeners have a sense of who's, uh, who's, who will be talking about beyond the velvet rope. Josh? Hi, I'm Josh Torrance. I'm the executive director of the Woodlawn Museum, Black House in Ellsworth, where I have been for almost nine years now. Mm. And uh, I came to uh, Woodlawn directly from graduate school at the Cooperstown Graduate Program in Cooperstown, New York, where I got to know Niles, actually, and uh, uh, really was ingrained in Cooperstown. It was ingrained in me sort of the sense of community and, and a sense of purpose that museums serve for communities. Mm. And t j just give us a, a, a brief description of the Woodlawn. Sure. Woodlawn is, a, um, is unique among American historic house museums in that uh, not only is the house uh, and its contents original and uh, has been left to us exactly as the family left it, but we're also unique in that we're also a 180-acre uh, estate now used as a public park. We have two miles of hiking and walking trails, a community garden, uh, a very large croquet court, uh, and uh, wonderful open spaces where people can come and, and have picnics or fly a kite or just enjoy the, the tranquility of a wonderful preserved estate. Great. We'll come back to that in, in a few moments. Uh, Niles Parker, a little bit more about yourself and the Penobscot Marine Museum. Great. Uh, my name is Niles Parker, Executive Director at the Penobscot Marine Museum in Searsport. I've been there about uh, two and a half years now. Uh, before that, I was out on Nantucket Island at the Nantucket Historical Association, uh, which w uh, had about two dozen properties, many of which were historic homes. And as Josh mentioned, before that in Cooperstown, where I got to know him. 
the Penobscot Marine Museum was founded in 1936 and is the oldest maritime museum in Maine. Um, a series of about a dozen buildings right there in downtown Searsport. Most people are surprised at how big the campus is. I think it's just the one building on Route 1 there, but we're a series of buildings that stretch back there, about three acres. And our goal has evolved to become you know, more than just the story of 19th century sea captains that I think everybody associates, associates us with and to become that um, really museum, history museum of the Penobscot Bay region, our collections mm. and our mission really stretch to include, uh, you know, all the way down east. Mm. And um, Earl, could you give us a little background on yourself? You've got a number of different um, <coughs> roles there. Um, sure. I, I've listed you as Maine State Historian, but I know that you play other roles within um, the, the historic preservation community. Certainly. Well, first, uh, I'm uh, a native of Portland. I was educated at uh, Colby uh, and at Boston University, and then came back to Maine after graduate school and started working for the state at the Maine Historic Preservation Commission in 1973. I became director in 1976, and I've held that uh, position ever since. Uh, the commission is devoted to the National Register Program in Maine, and we can get in more mm -hmm. into that yes. as we have our discussion. Uh, but uh, we've been very active in working with uh, both individuals, organizations, and communities for approximately 35 years to assist in the preservation of historic resources and prehistoric resources in Maine. Uh, I also, in uh, 2004, was appointed by Governor Baldacci as the sixth uh, state historian. Uh, the Office of State Historian was created in 1907, uh, and the purpose really is to advise uh, the governor and the legislature on historic matters and also to promote uh, the study and the interest of Maine history uh, throughout the state. Uh, so this is uh, kind of a second hat that I've, I've really enjoyed uh, working with. And again, uh, I'll get into some of the ideas that are evolving out of that. Great. Um, perhaps each of you could talk about um, uh, how have we traditionally celebrated and conserved local historic resources. Um, Earl, you mentioned um, that the historian, the, the role of the state historian goes back to um, 1907. Um, hi preserving history goes back beyond that. H how have we traditionally done that? Earl? Well, uh, actually, it's a good question for the moment we're at, because uh, a week or two ago, I was down at the Maine Historical Society in Portland, where they were celebrating the reopening of their library, which coincidentally was built in 1907. But the society goes back to 1822. So Maine people have been really aware of the need to preserve and celebrate their history almost from the beginning of statehood. We mm. became a state in 1820, and within two years, some of the men who helped to shape uh, the formation of the state uh, created the State Historical Society. And that, of course, is one uh, approach, which is the, the broad approach of collecting books, manuscripts, photographs, artifacts, saving those, displaying them, making them available to scholars and interested parties. Um, but that movement really in the 20th century expanded greatly to the regional and local level so that now we actually have several hundred uh, local historical societies around the state, many of which hold his historic properties and use them as both museums and as repositories for their collections. So it's a from, from a very um, focused movement in the 1820s, it's grown to a very broad-based 
uh, movement in the early 21st century. Mm. Niles, maybe start start with you in terms of, of the, the creation of the Penobscot Marine Museum and, and how did that come together? Why were people interested in looking at Searsport as a special place and, and thinking about how they could tell that story? Well, uh, like Earl just mentioned, it began very specifically and legend has it that one of the founders was uh, driving along, look, interested in collecting material culture and artifacts related to the history of the region, and saw a guy throwing half-hull models just under the, under the fire, basically, as kindling, mm. and said, whoa, 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 this can't keep happening. Right. You know, we've got to jump in here and do what we can to save this. This is going to be gone, you know, within a generation if we don't act now. And so I think that feeling um, generated a very strong movement to try to collect acquire these artifacts that symbolized what was being seen as a bygone era mm -hmm. and uh, interest in the Searsport area at the head of Penobscot Bay and in a town that had been um, celebrated as the home of many, many sea captains in the 19th century. Mm. How about you, Josh, in terms of the Woodlawn story, why did the family decide that they wanted to give um, this property to a group that had existed for a number of years. Tell us a little bit about the Hancock County sure. Trustees for Public Reservation. Yes, yeah. It, it's an interesting story, and, and Woodlawn really comes about because of those two, two uh, threads. First, uh, the last owner of Woodlawn, George Nixon Black Jr., or Nixon as his friends and family called him, um, was really an individual who deeply cared about uh, his family's history, the history of Maine, the history of New England, uh, really the history of the United States. And he comes out of a, or is influenced by a movement that we call the colonial revival period. And uh, although the colonial revival has probably been around for as long as America has been around, uh, it really, as a movement, really begins to take hold in the late uh, 1870s, particularly around 1876 with the Philadelphia uh, Centennial Celebrations. And at that time, uh, people, Americans, really developed an intense, not for the first, but for a very, for a first strong time, got really interested in American history. Mm -hmm. And they said, hey, we've got to start saving this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's around this time that Mount Vernon, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, and other such groups start saving and, and um, protecting historic uh, properties. Nixon gets, if you will, caught up in all of this. Um, for him, it's a little bit more personal in that his great-grandfather was General David Cobb, and David Cobb was one of the heroes of the American Revolution. So for Nixon to get interested in American history was personal, and then he has this wonderful uh, family home, uh, Woodlawn, uh, where was his vision and his interests were all able to come together. Mm. Um, his family history, his interest in American uh, material culture, to the point that uh, he decided it was the best thing to do to to save this for for future generations to use, which I think was a kind of a visionary and 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 really a remarkable story. It's also remarkable that it leaves it it leaves Woodlawn to the Hancock County Trustees of Public Reservations, the the first land and preservation, uh, certainly the first land conservation group in the state of Maine. Um, their group formed in 1901 by Charles W. Elliott. Um, modeled after the Massachusetts trustees of reservations. They uh, formed principally to save land on Mount Desert Island, although they save land elsewhere, with a very interesting uh, mission, uh, land for scenic beauty, historical significance, uh, scientific study, or sanitary value. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and what's that about? <laughs> <laughs> they did a great job, uh, but you know they did such a great job on Mount Desert Island that 
there was actually a, a movement to have their charter removed. And that was really about all this land going off tax rolls and going into private uh, nonprofit ownership, uh, even though they wanted to maintain it for public use. So the state, um, they decided a different course. The best way to preserve this for the, the people of the state of Maine long term was to give that land to the national uh, government. And eventually that land was given and became Lafayette National Park. And now we know it is Acadia National Park. Mm. So uh, it's kind of an interesting course for Woodlawn to how it was preserved from Nixon, uh, the colonial revival collector, to this um, Hancock County Trustees Land Conservation Preservation Group. So these represent these two stories represent kind of a second wave, other than collecting artifacts and historical records and and uh, diaries and that sort of thing that might have started earlier. This was actually taking uh, pieces of the, of the landscape um, and the community and saying these are special. So that represents a kind of a second wave. Um, so setting them aside was one thing. What came next? How did you begin to to uh, tell the stories? Uh, maybe starting with Niles and and then going to to Joshua. Right. Well, I think the the again that notion of collecting things was the impetus to create a museum, and I think that was true as you know as Earl was mentioning uh, earlier was the birth for a lot of museums um, around the country at that time, thinking that, that they were um, collectors and preservers and protectors of this material culture and those artifacts that could tell us about our past. And, and museums uh, were born. Uh, I think it's been, museums have traditionally been set up to acquire those artifacts, preserve those artifacts with curators, with conservators, with registrars to organize them, take care of them, and uh, display them uh, occasionally changing exhibits and that type of thing. And for much of the 20th century, that was that was the model. I think in the last decade or two, really, of the 20th century, you begin to see an emphasis and a shift towards educational uh, experiences and components and the growth of education departments and museums around the country take off at that time as well. And that is a shift away from sort of collecting the artifact for the sake of the artifact itself and looking at how can you utilize educational theory and concept to take what is embedded in those artifacts and uh, and teach mm. to school children and to visitors uh, that history that is found therein. And I, I think what then grows out of that is uh, the move towards the visitor experience and that it's not just school kids that you're hitting on school field trips or after school experiences, but you've got people who are coming in now in cultural tourism and uh, expecting to see and to learn and, and how can museums then adapt and share their resources with those. So I think that's sort of been the transition that you've seen in museums generally. Mm -hmm. it's, been, it's been true for the Penobscot Marine Museum. Mm -hmm. Joshua, um, similar, similar uh, take on that? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I just add, interestingly enough, you know, one of the, another early uh, impetus for the formation of museums early on was the sense of being American. Hmm. And some early museums were set up, uh, uh, whether they were consciously or not, but many were set up with a sense that, you know, there's all these immigrants coming into the United States, particularly, you know, in the, in the later half of the 1800s. And we've got to make sure that um, these people coming in uh, are Americanized, but also that caused a great deal of fear and anxiety. Oh my God, you know, we've got to save America, mm. our culture, before we lose it. And so the daughters so, of the American Revolution, that kind of, that exactly. kind of movement. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly that's, uh, to a certain extent, that is uh, tied into the colonial revival and the story of sort of how Woodlawn came about. Um, 
you know, Woodlawn has been able to be preserved, um, and I think this is kind of interesting, by volunteers. Uh, up until 2000, uh, a volunteer group, uh, the Hancock County trustees, had, had maintained and, and cared for this. Uh, and then, you know, in 2000, uh, sir, I came along and uh, we brought a professional uh, sort of staff to the institution, but it's been, as Niall said, now, instead of just sort of inviting people to come in and sort of um, passively standing by, it's really about, I think museums are really about now having conversations with people, in particular having conversations with your community. Mm. Uh, and really the way to uh, sort of inspire and get people to appreciate history is to um, have those kinds of uh, conversations and, and uh, if you will, let people experience um, the collections. There used to be you know, behind the velvet rope, can't touch, can't go near the collections. Now there's a definite movement in the field that people really need to carefully, tactfully, you know, uh, uh, touch or somehow experience history. Mm. We're listening to, um, you're listening to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're talking about Beyond the Velvet Rope um, as we talk about stewards of history, energizers of community, looking at the role of of, uh, groups who are celebrating and preserving uh, Maine's history. Um, uh, with us in the studio are Joshua Torrance, Executive Director of the Woodlawn Museum in Ellsworth, and Niles Parker of the Penobscot Marine Museum um, in Searsport. Joining us by phone is, is Earl Shettleworth of the Maine State uh, Historic Preservation um, Commission. Earl, how, what would your um, story be in terms of moving us from the, those early days to where we are now? What, what are some of the trends that you're seeing? Well, I think uh, what, what began to happen in terms of kind of broadening the approach, it's very interesting when you look at it from a historical perspective now of 40 to 50 years. Um, I think a lot of uh, what we're experiencing now really came out of the mid-1960s of the Great Society culture, mm-hmm. where uh, in the period in which Lyndon Johnson was president, uh, there was the idea of creating the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, and at the same time, uh, the National Historic Preservation Act was passed in 1966. So in those mid-60s, uh, the idea of the federal government coming in and creating uh, kind of broad-based uh, programs that had national goals and national standards made federal money available to the states, but also gave the states on an individual basis a fair amount of leeway in which to structure those programs according to their own uh, special state and regional needs and interests. And so that's really what created the Main Historic Preservation Commission and its counterparts around the country. Uh, the commission was created in 1971. Uh, the act was passed in 66. Uh, the first funding came to Maine in 69. And then the commission was, as I say, created in 71. What many people don't realize is that uh, our um, late Senator Edmund Muskie uh, was really the prime author of the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966. He's remembered for his pioneering work in clean water and clean air in this very same period in the 60s, but he also was in the forefront of of creating the act which was to protect uh, historic resources on a broad base. Now, the, the theory behind this is that uh, there's no change in private property rights as far as a property either being found eligible for the National Register or going on the National Register. However, if any federal, federally funded or federally licensed program is going to affect that property, whether it's an individual building or whether it's historic area, then uh, 
the office at the state level is required to review that project for impact and to uh, provide protection for that resource. There are also, over the years, both state and federal have been grant monies, uh, and in addition to that, uh, recently there have been some very dramatic um, uh, progress made in making both state and federal tax credits available for the rehabilitation of properties that are income producing. So that this has really moved the program from kind of the sequester of the individual historic site or building uh, in right to the downtown, to the main street, so to speak, uh, to try and use historic preservation as a an economic engine, as a tool for um, economic uh, growth and recovery, so to speak. And you probably got some stories about um, uh, where that's worked particularly well in the last few years. Can you give us some of those stories? Sure, sure. Well, um, I, I would say one of the one of the most um, uh, dramatic um, aspects of this, of course, has been uh, the Main Street movement. Back when the first federal tax credits were passed by Congress in 1976, way before there were any thought of state tax credits for rehabilitation of income-producing properties, uh, the Main Street Preservation Commission responded to this by doing an inventory of all of the eligible historic main streets. And they range from, you know, a small strip of, of uh, part of Main Street in, in Ellsworth, Upper Main Street, uh, to um, downtown Rockland, to uh, the waterfront in Portland, to way over in Western Maine, to the Main Street in Norway, uh, downtown Eastport. Uh, those are just a few examples. And we worked very hard in those days, in the late 70s and the early 80s, to get all of those eligible areas listed in the register. And that legwork of those years is really paying off now because what we're seeing is there is now a, a very organized Main Street effort that's a kind of a public partner private partnership here in Maine. Uh, in some cases, communities are actually having downtown managers, and there's a real um, conscious effort to promote not only the preservation of the buildings, but also once the buildings are preserved, the use of that streetscape uh, to regenerate downtowns. Of course, a lot has happened economically uh, to the downtowns in Maine. A lot of competition from the strip, from the big box stores. And so in recent years, uh, historic preservation uh, and its economic tools have really become vital to uh, regenerating the downtowns and making them competitive uh, to the newer trends that have occurred on the outskirts of these communities. Mm. At the same time, uh, Joshua, you were telling me that um, there's been a national conversation um, really about moving um, the historic sites and, and uh, historic resources into a more community conversation. Uh, tell us a little bit about that national, sure. uh, professional uh, conversation. Well, um, in, in, in 19, after 1976, there was a uh, real upswell, as, as Earl mentioned, as part of the Preservation Act um, and then in, at the bicentennial celebrations. All of a sudden, historic sites were popping up all over the place. Mm. <laughs> uh, and frankly, we probably have too many now. Um, <laughs> there's way too many out there. And in terms of being able to take care of, those of being now. able to take care of those right. and and to fund those, and I think the idea was, it was partially to save these places, partially to bring in tourism dollars, mm -hmm. and partially um, sort of just a, a sense of uh, volunteerism and, and 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 the right thing to do, if you will. The the trend nationally now has been, oh my God, 
all of these, many of these sites uh, are now suffering from years and years and years of deferred maintenance. Uh, and you know what? People aren't coming to historic sites as they used to come to historic sites. Um, and so there's a whole plethora of these places stuck with how do we now become sustainable? The old model isn't working anymore. So there's been quite a few national conversations. Um, different organizations have, have held these. And, and some, of the some of the recommendations that have come out have said, look, to, as a historic site, if you want to um, be sustainable in, uh, in the next century, you really have to look at what are the needs of your community and become more community-focused and centered. Uh, not so much relying on tourism dollars coming through, which um, has now pretty much been proven for many areas uh, that that's not a sustainable model. But really, you know, what what's the need? Um, Woodlawn, small example, but at Woodlawn, uh, a number of years ago, we were approached and uh, we had heard that there was a real need for a community garden in, in Ellsworth. Uh, and so we had all these open fields and we said, you know, that would be a great use. So we mm -hmm. have a community garden, but it's really, you know, it takes a, an effort to really get to know what your community wants and what the community needs are. Um, at Woodlawn, our other effort in that case was really, um, y you know, it used to be sort of the historic house on the hill and you kind of went there, you know, as a school kid for tours. It was never really thought of as a public park. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess some kids would come up and, and, and go sledding in the winter. Um, and certainly that has a long tradition. But really in the last 10 years, we put an emphasis on based on what the community said they needed it was really this is a public park come up and use and hike the trails and walk walk the trails etc so that's the sort of the, the national uh shift that's happening what what how can we better serve our community obviously taking a tour through the house although it was wonderful and you're teaching history those kind of tours are not paying the bills mm -hmm. and uh, niles in in uh, searsport um i know Tourism is important to that community. Um, certainly the Penobscot Marine Museum has, has looked at that. Um, how do you respond to this national dialogue about moving away from expecting tourists to, to kind of pay to this kind of community conversation? Right. I, oh, I, I think we're talking uh, sort of two points here. I want to make sure we're clear on it. One of the things that Earl was saying was that uh, looking at historic properties as um, you know, economic development mm -hmm. opportunities mm -hmm. and that public-private partnership downtown is one one thing that I think is absolutely critical, and we're looking at that in downtown Searsport, in fact. And the museum owns a, a historic brick block right on Main Street that has been underutilized for years, and it's only been occupied on part of one floor. And at top of the list of our strategic plan is how can we have more of a year-round presence and make our, our hub right there, right downtown, more visible right on Searsport, um, develop that historic block and and make that visible presence active and humming and and uh, more vibrant. And I don't think there are enough examples of that kind of mm. uh, historic site, if mm -hmm. you will. The historic site that Joshua was was talking about, I th I think it was he's talking about the you know the museum as a historic site and a house converted mm -hmm. into okay. a historic home. And I couldn't agree with him more. And that there there are too many of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that we I think we got into this sort of knee jerk reaction of let's build a historic site out of it. Um, uh, for a period of time, and as as Josh said, it's now proven that they're awfully hard to run and mm -hmm. awfully hard to sustain. And depending on where you are and how many of them are around in a particular area, it demands a lot of time and a lot of resources. And I think you're starting to see that analysis that in that one of those national conversations, to use the term uh, 
that's being discussed now is, well, what do we do here? We've got to clearly correct for, you know, the number of museums that just don't have the resources to kind of keep doing what they've been doing. Ron, may I just pick up on on that point that Niles is making, because I think it's a very important one. And that is that um, as we address uh, whenever we're confronted with the preservation of of an important site or a building, I think that nowadays uh, both people in the museum field and in the historic preservation field try to analyze a whole menu of strategies, Uh, Mm -hmm. the traditional strategy of just turning it into the local museum is not enough. And a lot of times it's very possible to preserve uh, a significant historic property uh, through continuing to have it in the private sector, whether it's uh, being an income-producing property downtown or if it's a significant local house that may have important interior as well as exterior features. It's possible through organizations like Maine Preservation, which is our statewide preservation group, or the National Trust, or Historic New England in Boston, uh, to put uh, 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 historic covenants on those properties. And a, a local private owner can continue to own and use the property, but he or she is restricted by those covenants in terms of changes to the property. So there, there are a number of alternative strategies that can be employed nowadays uh, to uh, preserve uh, significant uh, resources within the community. And Earl, just before we let you go, we're about that uh, time. Um, what, uh, um, how would people find out about some of those resources um, at the state level? Well, uh, certainly the the Maine Historic Preservation Commission uh, has a website. You can uh, reach us uh, through the State of Maine government page, uh, and then in addition to that, uh, well worth uh, going to the website of Maine Preservation, which is based in Portland, which is the statewide historic preservation group. Uh, Historic New England uh, is the oldest uh, regional historic preservation group in the country. They were formed uh, in 1910. They're coming up on their 100th anniversary. They're based in Boston. They have a website. Uh, Also, the National Trust for Historic Preservation has both a regional office in Boston and a national office in uh, Washington. And all of those groups that I've mentioned are devoted on a day-to-day basis to addressing historic preservation issues uh, and uh, could be helpful to anyone who's seeking guidance. Great. I, I think what you you and and our guests here in the studio are, are saying is if um, you are part of a community that cares about its history, you are not alone. <laughs> and there That's are resources correct. out there that can help you w- create a strategy that will work for you. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, Earl, thanks so much for being with us here on Talk of the Towns. Very good. Thank you. Bye-bye. Earl Shuttleworth is uh, the Maine State historian. Um, He um, was helping us with a conversation here on Talk of the Towns called Beyond the Velvet Rope, Stewards of History, Energizers of Community. And in the studio still with us is uh, Joshua Torrance of the Woodlime Museum, the Black House in Ellsworth, and Niles Parker of the Penobscot Marine Museum. Are there other examples of, of this kind of uh, shifting um, strategies, Niles? Well, I, I wanted to just, uh, Ron, follow up the sort of the second question you had asked me about, the, you know, the yes, tourism and, doing. And, yes. and the yes. museum. And I had mentioned about the building right on Main Street. And uh, actually, the reason we're looking at that so closely has far less to do with tourism and how, and more in the way of how we become a, a more year-round organization mm-hmm. and mm. become that community resource okay. right downtown and connect with the uh, year-round communities mm-hmm. in this region. I think it's safe to say, at least in the analysis that w- we've been doing, we can't sustain ourselves by, you know, opening the doors from 
you know, June to September. Um, and I think it, it short circuits and, and underserves our, our mission and the people that we're intended to, you know, serve the most. And that's mm-hmm. the folks who live here on a year-round basis. Mm-hmm. And so by, by integrating ourselves more with the community, by doing more programming, by reaching out into communities around this region and getting into the schools. And, you mm-hmm. know, I think that's the model for us in terms of um, sustainability. Mm-hmm. So in, you're uh, um, a large enough organization, so you probably have an, an ed- education director who's directly working on some of those strategies. We do, and, and she's been doing a fantastic job. We've um, been able to tap some federal monies for after-school literacy programs in the schools in the Frankfurt, Stockton Springs, Searsport, and now Belfast areas. and. The great thing is that it's all tied back into um, what's tied into the state learning standards mm-hmm. and the curriculum there, but also into our collections and uh, historical themes that uh, are in part of are part of what we think are is critical. So, the, a, an example of, of not paying attention or by paying attention to those community needs, you're able to design programs that, in fact, help the school system in that way. Yeah, it's sort of you know turned that model mm-hmm. around, mm-hmm. and I think that's going to be critical going forward. Mm-hmm. Josh, other other examples of how uh, the Woodlawn Museum is is reaching out to to be a, a full participant in the community. Uh, yeah, actually very similar, although not as formal of an after-school program. Um, we've been very uh, blessed to have a great educator ourselves, and she's done a great job connecting with the schools and uh, really providing students volunteer opportunities at, at Woodlawn, uh, everything from uh, helping with our tea programs, we do afternoon teas, to uh, actually cataloging the collections and uh, uh, translating some John Black's ledger books. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been able to tie into the school system in the non-traditional school tour way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really, again, uh, based on a need that was shown in the community. Um, so, the, it, you know, it it's really about looking at what those needs are. And it's amazing how many resources are available to find out what the needs are. Right. Uh, that's the great thing about Maine and probably elsewhere is that uh, for historic sites to really think about um, changing their model, the, it's very easy to f- determine what, what the needs are. In your so, community. for instance, if you turn to, um, is it Healthy Hancock, for instance, and their d- desire to have um, places for people to walk and recreate because it's healthy for them, you, you can it. provide that resource. Absolutely. In fact, uh, that's, you know, they, they put together a study a couple mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, actually, they're coming out with a brand new needs assessment, which is great. But the first needs assessment is really what we base our community garden on, what we base getting our trails fixed on, uh, what we base really opening up the property more as a public park. Um, absolutely. Uh, mm. Union River Healthy Communities was a great, great partner for great. us. Well, we'll be opening up our phone lines in a few minutes. You can take a note of this and give us a call if you've got a question or a comment. one 866 625-9378 or 469-0500. Josh, another point? Yeah, I just wanted to point out two examples of um, what Earl was speaking about, which is, you know, how do we reuse or repurpose mm. historic structures? Mm-hmm. You know, instead of tearing them down or if they were a house museum, you know, what do we do with them other than having them be house museums? Well, in, in Ellsworth, there's two really great examples, although they weren't house museums. Um, First is the main grind on Main Street, and the second is the courthouse gallery. Both are in very important, very significant historic structures. And the strategy there was to repurpose those buildings into new uses. And I think 
Um, in the, the case main of, grind, the, what was the older use? Uh, the main grind had been the Masonic Hall. Okay. And uh, they, the, the Masonic, um, the Masons, it was uh, difficult for them to uh, raise the, the, mon the money they needed to maintain and to uh, restore that building. And their strategy was, uh, let's, they, they sold it, mm -hmm. and the main grind came in and has restored it and has done a fantastic job um, really becoming a, a community center, if you will, for downtown Ellsworth. So that's a good example. And then the other reuse of a historic building is a courthouse gallery, which is uh, at the top of Bridge Hill in Ellsworth. And that was actually um, uh, sort of a unique partnership with the city of Ellsworth and uh, with the City Preservation Commission, and whereby uh, with certain easements put on the building, uh, it was sold for, for, for private use and uh, has now been a fantastic new addition to, to, to Ellsworth. Another one final example is uh, down in, uh, in Winter Harbor, and that's uh, Scudic Arts for All, which mm -hmm. is in, in a historic building, and they're doing great work down there. Great. We'll come, maybe come back to that. Um, but now let's go to uh, uh, down in the Lubeck area. Ruta Jordans is part of a group called the Association to Promote and Protect the Lubeck Environment and also um, providing tours, uh, historic tours um, to people in that area. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Ruta. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about um, Apple, um, the, the organization that's promoting um, the Lubeck area and, and how it got started. Okay, well... You know, tourists come to Lubeck. They've come to see the West Quadiad Lighthouse and see the easternmost point in the U.S. But traditionally, they only stay an hour and maybe spend another hour or two over in Campobello at the Roosevelt Park. So when the opportunity arose for me to start a business, a group of us, we got together on, in the Lubeck Light Building on a sunny porch, and we just brainstormed. Hmm. We wanted an organization whose purpose would be to both promote and protect Lubeck, its history, its culture, the ecology of the area, and especially the economy. So Apple was born, the association to promote and protect the Lubeck environment. Um, we wanted to offer tourists something more to do here so that they would appreciate the complexity of our history and culture and ecology, but also so that they would stay longer to help mm. the economy by eating shopping, staying overnight or longer. So that's a, that's a great story. And, and how long ago did that group meet on the porch? In 2005. Uh-huh. And what's happened since? Well, our first year we received a grant um, to take high school students on our history tour because our, the first summer we started three basic tours because we didn't have much money, obviously. Uh -huh. So we tried to do things that would not cost us a lot to do. We have rare arctic bogs, bogs here so we uh, take people on the bogs um, we go down to the intertidal shore because somebody from indiana doesn't know that there's all that stuff that lives there <laughs> right yeah so we did that but we also started the history tour and it's a history of a van driven tour of history of lubeck and campobello and our first year, we got a grant to take high school students on the tour, the history tour, and it was a re revelation hmm. for us because they knew so little of their own local history. And for them, it was fascinating to find out that Lubeck had a vibrant, interesting history. Right. 
right? So what have you learned along the way to kind of blending this kind of public group with, with tours, which are a, a private business, as I understand? Well, it's a nonprofit corporation. It, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the Apple is nonprofit, so the tours are a part of Apple. Okay. And so what, what have you learned ab about how um, to put these kinds of things together? What were some of the, the hurdles that you had to, to uh, um, get over um, to, to make all this successful? Because I think there may be listeners um, who are fascinated with that kind of story. I think that the first thing that we had to learn was first to learn what the history was because it, mm -hmm. was, no, it was not documented chronologically anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of hard to just go out there and start telling stories. So we ended up having to come up with a timeline, put the timeline geographically in different parts of Lubeck so that we would go up to North Lubeck where Lubeck actually started and be able to explain what happened there, um, then tell what happened in Lubeck Village that it actually only was founded during the War of 1812, when some merchants from Eastport, which was occupied by the British, um, came over to, to Lubeck and, and started Lubeck Village. Um, and so we had to put it all into perspective geographically also. So you were thinking um, multidimensional. It wasn't as though you wanted a um, history on a page. You were history in a community right. and getting people to different places so that they, th they could think about the different phases of Lubeck's history. And add the stories. And, and, and the, and so the we stories, were right. Very lucky to get a couple of um, local people, local women who um, they are fifth and sixth generation um, of, of people living in Lubeck. So they could put together our timeline with their family stories. Oh, up there, that smoke, that, my grandfather had a smokehouse up there, but it burned. Uh huh, <laughs> uh huh, yeah. And and so as you look to um, a new season, hopefully the the fog has risen and and the, the sun, sun is shining. Today. So wh what's what's ahead for you this this particular season? Anything new? Um, well, there's all kinds of exciting stuff all of a sudden happening here. Um, the McCurdy Smokehouse. I don't know if if you've heard of that. Um, it was the last smokehouse in the U.S. that closed in 1991. Big landmarks bought it and. Um, They've, they're giving tours in there, and they've invited us to include that in their history, t in our history tour, mm -hmm. so that um, it's not you don't just see the building and hear the voices on the video, but you go in there and you smell the sticks that they put the, the the herring on, and and you know, getting the sense of smell into history <laughs> really makes it more alive. Rather than just musty old books, um, yes, have it yes. smelling the, the fish. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Josh, um, Joshua wanted to make a point. Uh, Joshua Torrance. Well, you know, hearing all these stories and, and this conversation today, really, you know, if I were to summar summarize it, really, it, it's about creating a sense of place uh -huh. and how we have, um, how the field, how, how we have, as a nation, have, have created that sense of place and changed that meaning of sense of place. And so by that, do you mean that um, there's a danger in the United States of everything feeling the same because of the strip malls and that sort of thing? And you're saying that there's some... Or it's pressures, changes coming okay. in. You know, early on it was immigrants. Okay, that, that was that was a f That was a change to the sense of place. Okay. Now maybe it's strip malls okay. or this... But you know, in the past, whereas we uh, save places and we collected things and we put them behind cases so we could have that sense of place, 
now we are sort of realizing there's other ways to create this sense of place. Mm-hmm. And in Ellsworth and Searsburg and Lubeck, I think all the examples, what we're all doing in, in some ways the same, in some ways the different, is really trying to um, maintain that sense of place, especially today in a society where there's so much fight against sense of place, whether it be, um, you know, the internet, um, changing technology, um, you know, the, how do you how do you maintain that sense of place when you can go on Facebook and <laughs> connect right. with people all over the world mm-hmm. and not even leave your 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 computer or your room? Mm-hmm. I think that's a critical point, Josh. You're absolutely right, and I think that it's very easy for museums right now to be waving their hands and and moaning, saying times are terrible, the economy's hard. You know, we're scrambling every everywhere to raise a buck, and that's true. But I think the point that Josh made about um, or, you know what I what I think is that's growing sort of backlash against that um, homogenous culture that American society was becoming. Um, hopefully, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we are going to be turning backwards again. You know, into more local, regional culture and people really taking pride in the community. You know, local food push mm-hmm. your music. Your, mm-hmm. You know. History and I think it's incumbent upon museums, historical organizations, to be asking themselves, how do we play a central role in that transformation, in that dialogue? How do we engage our community partners? How do citizens here find a place where they can go, not only to learn about the past, but how to sort of think about decision making for the na- for, you know, for the present and for the future? And I think that, in from that standpoint we are in a great period of time for mm. museums and historical societies where if we're smart and we're able to you know, think outside the box and really take some chances, try something totally different, think way beyond the velvet rope, mm-hmm. then uh, I think hey, there's I some great opportunity. And, you know, R- Ruta, Ruta, go ahead. Yeah, um, Lubeck last year was part of the Main Memory Network, the Heritage Project, mm. and that was the most wonderful way to involve a large portion of people in Lubeck, including... If you go on our website, on, on, on there, the Main Memory Network, you'll see the fifth graders did a, an exhibit about children in 1936 that had gone out during uh, when school was over. You know, they all went out to celebrate uh, mm. to Gardner's Lake, and 12 of them drowned. Mm. And that was devastating at that time for Lubeck. And for a long time, people wouldn't talk about it. And then a few years ago, a lady, Vicki Shad, wrote a book about um, remember the children, and these kids now in fifth grade took that as their project. Hmm. So, so it, it's an exciting way to get them to look back and 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 to see how it relates to them. Great. And uh, before we let you go, Ruta, um, list your your website information. How would people get in touch with you? We're at toursoflubeckandcobscook.com. dot com. Great. And have you got that group back on the on the porch anytime recently to say well, what you've accomplished and, and look ahead? You know, we every once in a while, especially now that we've done the Heritage Project, um, because many of the same people were invi- involved in that, and, and you can just see how it's all grown, how, you know, we're working together with Historical Society, we're working together with West Quaddy Head Lightkeepers Association, um, we're working together with Lubeck Landmarks. It, it's it's really all become um, um, an ongoing kind of growth for us. That's great. A great story. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Ruta Jordans of Apple, the Association to Promote and Protect the Lubeck Environment. It's your turn now, one 625 9378 
That's uh, toll-free or locally 469-0500 if you'd like to participate in this conversation beyond the velvet rope, stewards of history, energizers of community. Toll-free number again is 1-866-625-9378. You're welcome to call with your questions or your comments or or just to share a story about what you're doing in your community um, to preserve and celebrate history. In the studio with us, we have Niles Parker of the Penobscot Marine Museum and Joshua Torrance of the Woodlawn Museum in Ellsworth. Um, I do believe we have a phone call. We'll wait for that and then uh, go ahead and involve you in our conversation. 1-866-625-9378. Well, uh, we have a call. Yes, we do. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yeah, good morning. It's uh, Richard Scheideroff from Brooks and Rockport. Great. And this morning I'm wearing the hat as of... Um, representative of the Brooks Preservation Society. A group of us have uh, bought up, started to buy up uh, what remains of the previously grossly mismanaged uh, Belfast and Moosehead Lake Railroad. Ah, yes. Mm. We've been on that uh, project for a year and a half. We have a lot of opportunities for citizens of all ages and all stripes to come uh, play and work hard in our learning environment. We've got design, build, restoration projects going, people are interested in, especially I would say young people who might be interested in uh, any sort of engineering, civil, mechanical, and electrical engineering, carpentry, we're designing and building a museum, starting with the uh, station house in Brooks. We have bought our first two antique 70 ton uh, circa 1940s, they're 46 and 1950s. 70-ton General Electric diesel engines. We have an open-air excursion car. My pet project is restoring a 1926 60-passenger Pullman-type car. And uh, we're interested in having young people come in and work with us and interested in elderly people who have uh, broad and deep knowledge of all of these trades and professions coming in and working with uh, young people. Last weekend we had over 150 people come and ride on four four of our first excursions and uh, this weekend we have rail bikes that we have on the rails if the rails are dry enough for traction and get quite a good workout on them. <laughs> Great. And how would folks contact you if they were interested? Well, let's see, they could uh, call, they could try calling, uh, well I think the best thing to do is to look up uh, the uh, website Brooks Preservation Society. Wonderful. And you and you'll also find uh, updates on our Facebook page. If you go to brookspreservationsociety.org. Great. You'll uh, you'll find that. Well, thanks so much for your call this morning. All right. 1-866-625-9378. We do have another caller. Tell us where you're calling from and uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Hello there. Calling from Frankfurt. I'm just checking to see who the staff member is that was on the show speaking of the uh, staff member at the Sears Port museum that that was writing a book about the 18th century american revolution the naval end of it hmm that's maybe stump the chumps here um <laughs> niles Parker right, is I'm, giving I'm, that some thought I'm, I'm running that around in my head right now a staff member uh if i was speaking about earlier our staff member betty schopemeyer is our education director who started the the after school program in frankfort stockton springs and searsport i don't know if that's okay to... i can contact that person are, uh, are you writing a, a history of it is that well, I'm doing, I'm doing some history on it, but I was just wondering as I'd like to touch base with because of the naval end of the, uh, you know, because of the things that went on in Machias and right. and the French help in Newport, Rhode Island and everything, it's pretty hard to find information about it. I just wanted to check with this person that's writing this book. Right. Actually, 
Uh, why don't you call me at uh, 548-2529. And I'm extension 201. 201. Yep, and we might want to get you down to our library to do a little digging. Okay. That's great. Thanks. Oh, all right, thanks. very good. Yes, thank you. Good thank day. Thank you for your call. We have one more call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, hi, Ron. It's Carl Little calling from the Maine Community Foundation. Hi, Carl. How are you? Great. Uh, it's a great show you're, you have there, and uh, you're, you're really covering some great ground there. I, I did want to mention, and I, I haven't heard the whole program, but there are two resources I wanted to, mm. to, to give you. Um, one is the, the uh, Maine Development Foundation's uh, Maine Downtown Center. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a terrific program that they have that focuses on revitalizing downtowns around Maine. I happened to go to their, their day-long conference in Rockland a couple of weeks ago, and there's just an enormous amount of energy around you know, the idea of, of revitalizing downtowns in Maine, and I, I, I would definitely put that on the list of, uh, of important resources. Um, I also wanted to mention the Maine Community Foundation uh, has some uh, special funds related to historic preservation. Uh, one is uh, very discreet uh, related to uh, uh, steeples, the mm, main steeple that's right. fund. Yes. Uh, I mean, and we've been working with Maine Preservation and also with the Maine uh, Preservation Commission. Um, and then the other one that's, that's coming online this month is the Belvedere Fund for Historic Preservation. Um, that, that will be a competitive fund uh, beginning later this month, um, and that will be uh, the information for that and guidelines will be on our website at uh, www.maincf.org. Great. Uh, for people who are interested. And that's primarily down east Maine, uh, Hancock, Washington, uh, but also for, for other rural areas uh, where there are historical uh, downtown uh, structures that are looking for funds to, uh, to, to help restore their, their structures. The other thing I think you have is a, is a re repository of stories where, where communities and community members have successfully kind of engaged with one another to create these kinds of projects, and, and uh, you pr probably have a treasure trove of, of, of good stories. Oh, I think so. I mean, there are so many. I, I mean, uh, uh, someone there mentioned the Scudic Arts for All, the Hammond Hall, uh, you know, which is just a, a, a brilliant example, I think, of, of a community coming together around this historic structure to create this very vibrant uh, community center. Uh, there, are, there are other wonderful projects. Uh, Liberty Hall in Machiasport, I think, is, uh, when it's done, is going to be a shining, shining light as far as historic preservation down east goes. Uh, the Tides Institute, uh, I, I mean, I could go on, but there uh, a lot of these organizations, as Josh and Niles have been pointing out, uh, that, that have a historic mission but also are so community-oriented. Uh, I happen to be on the e-bulletin list for the Woodlawn, and I get something, it seems to me, like uh, at least twice a week. <laughs> Great. And uh, I guess my, my point is that um, if someone were to, to get stumped in their community and they didn't know where else to turn, you've got stories at Maine Community Foundation that they might want to look at, kind of a, a case studies and so on, that, of successful projects. Absolutely. Great. Well, thanks, Carl Little, for being with us uh, on Talk of the Towns. Thanks, Ron. Um, one 625 9378 If you've got a question or comment or a story to tell about historic preservation beyond the velvet rope, we'd be happy to have your call. one 625 9378 uh, Niles, did you, oh, I thought you were raising your well, hand. Uh, no, <laughs> just a point I wanted to make uh, at some point today, I think, is that uh, I think it is really going to be critical for historical societies, museums, and other organizations of the type to really take chances in the way that we collaborate with each other. Mm. Um, as you've been hearing, 
there are many of these successful efforts depend on community involvement. And I think going forward, it's going to be critical that many of these successful enterprises uh, depend on other organizations sharing resources, um, sharing staff, maybe, you know, thinking creatively in terms of how we do it. Otherwise, we've got so many organizations fighting for the same buck, writing the same grant to the same mm -hmm. organization. Right. I think the successful projects are going to be those that have these organizations teaming up and uh, strategically thinking how we can align our efforts so we're not repeating work and yet everybody in this region can benefit from that kind of a setup. And that's the same, same story as the land trust movement in yeah, the state of Maine, right. where Absolutely. Maine has many, many land trusts and figuring out how to collaborate so that everyone gets um, a piece of, of, of uh, the resource but takes care of their backyard, and exactly. that's what you're saying. Absolutely. What, what else would you say in terms of your hopes for the future as we, as we wind up the hour? Joshua Torrance from the Woodlawn Museum. What are your hopes um, in terms of, of not only the Woodlawn Museum but for other groups in Maine? Uh, I, it, for me, uh, I, would, I would really, I guess my hope would be that, that people really think about that idea of creating a sense of place. Mm. And I think in Maine in particular where, you know, it seems to me there's fewer and fewer younger people that we've got to really pay attention to how we can use historic preservation in the non-traditional sense to uh, save that sense of place and uh, encourage people to not try to build more museums, uh -huh. but to save buildings for uh, some other kind of a, a, of a use. So um, to be able to tell the story of that building, as Ruta is doing, but not necessarily have it um, set aside yeah. beyond the Velvet Road. Or as Scudic Arts for All is doing mm -hmm. with Hammond Hall right. Uh, is right. a, a, another good example. Or what we're trying to do at Woodlawn, although we uh, are also have, uh, doing the, the tour component, but really preserve that sense of place, that, that something that makes you ma main so special. What 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 um, single technique would you say, or, or 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 a technique that would you use to engage that young person in looking at what their history tells them about their future? <laughs> uh, I, I think you have to. I mean, I I still think that nothing beats that experience of yeah. interacting with a That's historic true. object or getting in a historic interior and having that one-of-a-kind experience that you can't that cannot be found yeah. on the internet. Daddy, what's a train? Yeah. you got to ride yeah. the train. Yeah. You can't look at a picture book. That that being said, though, I think. To get today's youth, technology is critical, obviously. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. this is a generation that's grown up with something in their hands, and that's not going away. So got, we've got to figure out how to take advantage of that. Great. Niles Parker of the Penobscot Marine Museum, and Josh Torrance, you get the last word. You know, I think for me, it's you got to let people touch the stuff, and you got to let people experience it. Now, and with a respectful and, and mindful of, you know, we want to preserve this, but unless people really live with it, get their hands on it, and experience it, as Niles said, we can save it forever. We're pretty good at that. But unless we use it and teach people about it and let people get their hands on it, what's really the point? Great. Then it's just history. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks to, to our guests in the studio, again, Niles Parker of the Penobscot Marine Museum, Joshua Torrance of the Woodlawn Museum, Earl Shettleworth joined us from, the, he's the Maine State Historian, and Ruta Jordans of the Association to Promote and Protect the Lubeck Environment.
Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in. Thanks to Joel Mann for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.